Okay, so last week we've been going through the book of Judges. Uh, it's about a 300-year time period, and it goes from Joshua's death, essentially, uh, to the first king uh, that is crowned. And so there's this time period of about 300 years where the nation of Israel is in the promised land, and they don't have a leader, and they begin this cycle right, where uh, they don't have a leader, and so they start to turn to idolatry. In other words, they start adopting the, the nature, the, the worship of the people around them who were, they were initially called to drive out, and so they intermingle with them and all of those things, and so uh, ultimately that leads to enslavement uh, by those surrounding nations, and then the nation of Israel cries out to the Lord, and they say, save us, and then God, in his mercy, uh, sends a judge to come and save them. And then the cycle begins again, where they're saved. And then all of a sudden, slowly over time, they start to once again go into idolatry. And so we've been watching and, and walking through this cycle that the nation has been uh, going through. And then in Judges chapter 12, uh, we finished last week with uh, Jephthah, which, you know, crazy story. Uh, a lot of us may still be traumatized from that story and what happened, but that's okay, right? Uh, and so uh, after Jephthah was the judge, then in Judges chapter 12, verses 8 through 15, uh, we're quickly told about three others, and I just want to highlight who they are. One is Ibzan, uh, and he judged Israel for seven years. Uh, it says he, has, he had 30 sons. And then Elon from the tribe of Zebulon who judged Israel for uh, 10 years. And then Abdon uh, from the land of Ephraim, he judged Israel for eight years. It says he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And so that's kind of the framework. That's what's happened since Jephthah. So there's been three uh, judges since then. And then in chapter 13, we're brought into the story that I would say is possibly the most popular section in the book of Judges as we go into the life of Samson. And so we're going to read a lot this morning uh, as the uh, writer narrates for us what is happening. And so in Judges chapter 13, uh, let's look at verses, we'll start with verses 1 through 7. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, so first and foremost, in verse one of chapter 13 here, uh, we, we read a familiar phrase that we've been seeing all throughout the book. It says what? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so here we go again. 
right? So the nation of Israel, once again, they turn from the Lord and they start doing what they want, right? They start doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord is like, okay, that's what you want. You want to worship those other gods. You want to do evil. You want to operate in opposition to my will and my saving work in your life. Okay, you can have it. You're going to have it all. And so once again, there they are brought into uh, slavery by the Philistines. And this time it lasts for 40 years, which is the longest period of oppression that we see in the book uh, of Judges. And, and so we're, we're there. But then what we also see is there's this other phrase that this brings to mind that we also see repeated towards the end of the book of Judges. It appears twice in Judges 17 and 21. And, and it says the same thing, just in a different way. And it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we see that twice uh, at the conclusion of the book, right? And it's essentially saying the same thing from a different angle. And so what the writer is trying to communicate to you and I uh, today uh, is that many of the things that the Israelites did weren't evil in their eyes. So they're not evil in their eyes, and yet God is saying, that's wicked. That's evil. And so what this does is it teaches us two truths about sin. And the first is just the very heart, the very definition of uh, what sin is. You guys, the first thing you need to know is when you're defining sin, sin is not defined by what violates my conscience, uh, my, my personal standards, or even my, my community standards or, or values, but rather it's defined by what violates the will and the way and the heart of God. Okay, and, and so, and, and this, is, this is definitely against uh, what modern thinking will tell you, right? Because modern thinking will say that only you can define what's right and wrong for you. And yet when we really think about like that, from a common sense standpoint, we don't even really believe that, do we? Do we? And, and that's if you believe in the Bible or not. Because if evil is only determined by, by my own eyes, how in the world can I say what that person's doing is evil when they would say what they were doing is, in their own eyes, was okay? Or it was a righteous act. How in the world can you look at, uh, like what, what the Nazis did to try to exterminate the Jews and go, uh, how can you point that out then if it's only in your own eyes you define what's right and wrong because they were saying, we're helping humanity, right? We're fixing a problem. And, and so we don't really believe that, but then the problem becomes, Whose eyes are right here? Whose are the eyes that we operate off of when it comes to defining what is sinful in my life? If I can't trust my own eyes, is it a cultural expert? Uh, is it a certain group of people? Is it, is it just the majority of people and they say that and so I kind of just uh, drop in alignment to that group? Is that what we do? Well, according to scripture, no. The Bible tells us how sin is defined and it's defined by anything that violates our relationship with God and his will for us. And so what God sees as sin, you guys, it's sin. Regardless of what I feel or what culture may tell me. The second thing we see here 
is the deception of sin. Remember, Satan at his very core is what? He is a deceiver. Okay? He's a liar. And so this shows us very clearly the deception of sin. It says, in their own eyes, they weren't doing anything wrong. Right? So in their own eyes, we're, we're good, right? Um, and, and, and how do they get to that point? How does anybody get to that point, right? Because uh, some of us, we've, we've been there. Some of us are there right now. But how does someone get to the point where they're doing evil according to God, but in their own eyes, they see nothing wrong with what they're doing? How do we arrive there? Well, what happened with them is they had suppressed the truth of God for so long and, and, and so over a period of time, and it usually starts really small, right? Starts with a small compromise here and there. And then over time, we start to reject uh, what God's calling me to do, his purposes for my life, uh, clearly what's right and wrong. So I start to compromise there. And then over time, I start to normalize that to the point where now I don't even see it. I don't even notice it. And I'm so conditioned to it because I've done it for years now that I don't even experience conviction when I do it. I don't have any guilt, so it's okay. Uh, I've shared this before. One of the first requests I had when I surrendered my life to Jesus was I prayed for conviction because there were a lot of things that I knew were wrong that didn't bother me. And so I remember early on in my journey with the Lord, and it was a journey, uh, but I remember praying, God, I know this bothers you. It doesn't bother me. I need it to bother me because I know it hurts you. And so you guys, the longer you engage in something uh, that is against him, uh, you just need to know you're going to be conditioned to it. It's going to be normal to you. And you're actually going to start to lose uh, the very conviction that you're looking to feel or experience. And so we have to remember uh, that, that the heart of, of the sin that they're committing is what? It's, it's idolatry. And what's so dangerous about this, you guys, is uh, when we think of idolatry uh, and we look at the, uh, the history in the Old Testament, we tend to go, well, I don't have anything shiny in my home that I'm bowing down to, so I'm good. But remember at the heart of idolatry and how it happens and how it's so deceptive is usually it's a good thing. Not idolatry, but the thing that, that, that you elevate because idolatry is essentially anything that now I've placed my hope and my trust in uh, that, that, that is gonna deliver for me something that only God can deliver for me, right? And so... Uh, Throughout life, there are temptations to elevate uh, friendships, uh, family, my kids, uh, my marriage, uh, my job, uh, financial success, popularity. There is a temptation to, and, and, and not all those things are, are bad, are they? Well, oh, you guys are awesome. Okay. <laughs> so good. Glad I was, glad I, you know, was like, oh, I'm going to be here Labor Day weekend. All right. So, those things aren't bad, but very easily, quickly, and deceptively, they can be elevated in our lives to where they're all of a sudden my ultimate hope. And so that's what's going on with the nation of Israel. And so, you guys, what this reminds us of is that constant need that we all have to evaluate ourselves through Scripture and through personal accountability. 
uh, with other uh, Jesus followers. And so we need to know that because one of the things that is, that is in us, that is always pushing against God's will is we love to rationalize our sin, don't we? So we're really good at rationalizing why we do what we do, even if it's against God's uh, will to the point where slowly over time we accept it and then we stop seeing it, okay? Uh, and then in verse two, we're introduced to uh, a guy named Manoah uh, and his wife. And what we're told is the angel of the Lord uh, appeared to her. Now, from studying the angel of the Lord, what we believe is this is the pre-incarnate Christ that has come and, 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 and appeared to her. And we read that she's barren. She's been unable to have kids. And he tells her, you're gonna have a son. Now, this is the, this is the only um, circumstance that we read about like this in the book of Judges where a judge is chosen, we see, and set aside before they are born or conceived, which is showing us that God is initiating the work of grace and redemption here. Okay? And then she's told, like she's given literally like, you're, you're not allowed to drink any alcohol, any, eat anything unclean. You're not allowed to cut his hair because this son that you're gonna have is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. Now, what is that? Some of you may be asking, maybe you're completely unfamiliar with what a Nazarite vow is. A Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter six. The purpose of the vow was to ask for God's help during a crucial time, okay? It was a sign that you were looking to God during this critical, important season of, of, of your life with just this, this focus. And, and so uh, the stipulation was a Nazarite, they weren't to, to cut their hair. Uh, they weren't to drink from any produce from vines, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And they weren't to have any contact with uh, a dead body during the vow. Number six is also clear that the Nazarite vow was made voluntarily for a defined period of time. But what's really interesting here is Samson is born into this Nazarite vow and he was to stay a Nazarite his whole life. So his mother, his mother literally from that moment on, she's, she's told not to drink wine or eat, eat unclean foods because that vow started immediately when Samson was in her Womb, and so Samson was set apart by God before even his birth. But it also says how, it highlights how he's not going to bring about complete um, restoration for the nation. He's not going to bring a complete rescue, is he? He's going to begin that work, is what we read. And then it keeps going in verse 8. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man uh, who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes to the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any uh, unclean thing. All that I commanded, let her uh, observe. 
Okay, in other words, there, he does not answer Manoah's question, right? And so then in verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan between Zora and Eshtael. Okay, so we just read a lot here. But like I said, uh, the author is just, I mean, he's laying it out for us. And, and so his words are, are definitely enough. But Samson's mother shares with her husband what's just happened. Okay, she shares what what. What God has, has told her, what this prophet, this individual has said. And, and, and I love how he starts praying to the Lord after his wife shares what's happened. And, he, and, and he's like, God, please send this man back. Please. Because I want to know how I'm to raise this child. I want to know what I'm to do and not to do. I want to know what his mission is, his purpose, so I can be used by you, God, to train him up in that way. Right? That's a prayer that many of you with kids have prayed, haven't you? Right? Especially, uh, you know, I, I, I think of like all three of our kids, they're very, very different. And, and, and so it's a different prayer request, I, I just find, for all three of them. Uh, but he's, he's got a great request here. God, show me. Show me my role in this, this, this miracle baby's life. What is my role and my purpose? And so the Lord answers his request. The Lord sends the angel uh, of the Lord back and again, the angel appears to the wife and then she runs, she gets her husband so that he can repeat his request. But the angel, notice once again, the angel doesn't answer his question. The angel, this is what the angel says. I already told you what to do. So do it. Do what I asked. This is the diet. This is the restriction. This is what your wife's going to do. You guys do this. And, and, and Manoah, is, he's thinking this is a human prophet, right? So he's like, well, I'm going to feed you uh, and, and that. And, and, and the prophet says, no, prepare a burnt offering to uh, the Lord. And so then Manoah's like, well, what's your name so we can honor you when this prophecy comes true? And his name, he says, is too wonderful. It's too wonderful to grasp. At that point, he should have known something's up, right? <laughs> and, and so then on top of that, so he lights this altar and the flames start rising and the smoke and it goes up to the heavens. It says, all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord goes right into that. 
And as soon as they observe that, they bow down. And Manoah is like, I know from history, if you see the Lord, you're a dead man. And so we're going to die, honey. And calmer uh, heads, you know, one out. And she's like, listen, relax. No. Why would he have just done all that he did? He's like, yeah, you're right, honey. Which is another phrase repeated often in our homes. I know in mine. And so anyway, uh, they, they, they recognize, they recognize this isn't just somebody. I mean, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And so he's like, we're doomed. And she's like, no. And, and, and so what I love about this is what, what God does here, you guys, is he doesn't give them all the instructions that they think they need. Did you catch that? They're like, give us the instructions. Give us the guide map. Give us, uh, we need, like, like there's some, rough situations that our people group were enslaved that we're going through. We're going to raise this child in this culture that's consumed with idolatry. What's nothing to do with you, God. Like we need your help. Tell us, show us what to do. And what I love about what God does here, you guys, is this, it's the answer that you and I need to hear this morning. It's the answer that I know I'm, I'm, I'm crying out to God for, not only on behalf of my kids, but on behalf of myself, on behalf of our church, and, and, and on behalf of so many of you that I pray for. But what happens is the angel of God essentially says, you don't need to know all the playbook of all the answers. You need to know who I am. What's very clear at the end of this, is they know that that's God. That's God. And so what the angel of the Lord is communicating to him and to so many of us is, listen, stop getting consumed with this thought. And it's a paralyzing thought. God, I need to know, like, what do I do? If this happens, that happens, this situation, if it happens, what if it doesn't happen? How am I going to respond here? And, and, and you're like, God, where is it? Where is it? And and he's like, I've got something better for you. Me. Me. You guys, guidance, the guidance that you, the guidance that I am going to need in this life to grow, to thrive, to be all that God has asked me to be. It's going to come from a maturing relationship with him. Guys, that's the answer. It's not only the answer here, but it's the question for us, right? Do I have a growing relationship with him? If I have a growing relationship with him, guys, you, if, if you're a Jesus follower, you have the spirit of God inside of you, guiding, leading, directing, convicting, moving you, empowering you. All of those things are present. And so if I am focused on maturing and growing my relationship with God and not reading this because I just need specific answers, but because I want to know God, I want to love him. I want to know him more deeply. When you approach your Bible that way, when you approach church that way and your relationship with him in that way, he says, I'm going to give you absolutely everything you need to get through this warped, jacked up, twisted culture that you're in. He will. We see that Samson is born into the world, given the name, little son, essentially. That's what his name means. And then he grows up and he's blessed by God 
and God's spirit begins to work in him. And if we just left it at that, we would go, wow, chapter 14 is going to be incredible. The stage is set. 40 years of oppression and this miraculous birth. And, 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 and my goodness, he's been set aside by God. The spirit's already at work in him. And we're like, man, chapter 14 is going to be amazing. And then you read chapter 14 and you go, this is awful. This is awful. Oh man, this is nothing like the kids' Bible that I remember with Samson. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. Um, you know, like when he, we, we, yeah, it's the worst. Anyway, so let's read it. All right, let's read it. We don't run from it. We don't shy from it. We just read it, okay? In chapter 14, verse one, it says, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all uh, our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Uh, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Okay, so here we go, right? Uh, this, this is troubling. Uh, all of a sudden, we're introduced to uh, Samson, who, is, who, man, like I said, the kid's version of the Bible left out a lot of these characteristics of Samson, because when we start reading about Samson, and we're going to go this part one today, part two next week, you're going to see probably the most flawed judge of all of them. We're talking about a guy who did so many things that were just evil, that were wicked, and yet, in spite of all that, amazingly and miraculously, God uses him. But we see that Samson goes down to, it says, Timnah, and he sees this, this young Philistine woman, and he returns home to his parents, and he says, I saw this woman down there. Go get her for me. I'm going to marry her. Now, his parents, they remember what the angel of the Lord had said, right? That he is going to be a deliverer for the nation, uh, against the Philistines. So, so he comes back and he's not talking about, hey, I'm pushing back against the oppression of our people. No, he says, I'm going to marry into that. And so uh, clearly his, his parents are very troubled. Imagine their emotional state hearing that. Uh, and, and, and so there's, there's pushback there. They're like, listen, isn't there somebody from among our people whom you could marry? And the word uncircumcised here is a key uh, word here because what that reflected was a personal covenantal commitment to the Lord. And so when they're saying that, they're like, isn't there somebody um, who's got a, a covenant commitment to the Lord? Isn't there a family that, that you can find a woman out of that where her family honors and loves the Lord? Can, can you find that, please? And Samson says, no. Essentially, right? Doesn't, doesn't even listen, doesn't respond to it. And, and you guys, one of the things that I think is so important uh, for us is when you read things like this, you need to understand when, when, when God is like, don't marry in this way, uh, God is not talking about, oh, they're a different kind of people group. Like this is a racial thing. No, this is a God covenant issue. Okay, back in Exodus, Moses had said, this is why you are not to marry with these people because they are full of idolatry. And we're talking evil, wicked practices of idolatry. He says, if you go that route, you are gonna adopt 
that very way of thinking and that very uh, idolatry that characterized those nations, you're going to start to become uh, that. And so it's an interfaith issue here. But, oh man, notice Samson's response. What, what is it? She's right in my eyes. Well, we've heard that before. She's right in my eyes. That sounds familiar. That is exactly how Israel was living, isn't it? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So you guys, here is what is just so sad. Here is this leader. Huge, incredible calling on his life. Parents know it. He's been set aside by God, before birth, he is a miracle. He's a walking miracle. And, and, and everywhere he goes, it's unavoidable, right? I mean, his hair is long. So people are like, wow, you got long hair. Yeah, I'm a Nazarite. Like, every, he doesn't drink that. He only eats that. He doesn't touch it. Like, like everything about his life should communicate different, separate. And, and yet, what do we see here? We see him adopting the very way of thinking that characterized his people, right? Uh, he's literally doing what's right in his own eyes. Get her for me. She's right in my own eyes. And so Samson is reflecting the very people that he came to save, uh, and he's not reflecting God. He was to reflect God. He was set aside to be uh, this, this image, this person that people could look to and know there's something different. There's a different way. There's a different value system. There's a God that loves me. There's a God that wants to bring me out of this enslavement. And yet Samson, the savior, he just goes, no, I'm, I'm one of you. And so I'm going to tell you right now, you guys, if you want to be a spiritual leader for the Lord in your home, in your family, uh, at your work, uh, in a church setting, you just need to know that maybe the thing that is the hardest is the fact that you're going to have to reflect God when no one else wants to. You're going to have to reflect God when your family's not going to agree with it, when your coworkers are not going to agree with it, when the situation isn't going to agree with it. And guys, I, man, that's one of the toughest parts about, I, I know, being a spiritual leader is, is that calling. There, there's so many times where, where, where God's like, no, I want you to do this. I want you to say this. And, and I'll sit there and go, man, they're not going to like that. Well, if I do this, and, and, and God continually reminds me, I don't have you as a pastor to please those people. And that's tough, right? Isn't it tough? Because, guys, we all want to please people. Like, none of us, I mean, maybe a few of you are like, some of you, you know who you are. Yeah. None of us are like, man, I want enemies. Like, let's go. God, just bring some new enemies into my life, right? Like, no, we're all like, how do we keep the peace? How do we, how do we solve this? How do we reconcile? All these things is what we think about. And yet what's so tough is there's a distinct calling on your life. And it's going to be different. And we see it clearly here with marriage. And Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. He reiterates the same thing, and he's renewing that call to believers. He's reminding them, you are, you are, your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are not to mingle with that. That's not of, of, of God. Uh, you have the Spirit of the living God in you. What, are you. what are you doing? You don't have partnership with that. No. And, and so what he's trying to reiterate there is the same 
issue that, that if you enter into a marriage with somebody that wants nothing to do with God, in spite of them maybe being nice, in spite of them maybe even loving you, you need to know that it is going to draw you away from where your loyalty, your allegiance needs to be first and foremost, which is with God. If you enter into a marriage with someone that, that just doesn't want, like how in the world do you have a foundation, right? Because the foundation of marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so if I'm, if I'm like, oh, I want to get married and she wants nothing to do with God and I'm saying, well, I serve God, I worship God, I follow God, uh, I want to marry, I want to get married because I want to reflect God. Well, you got a problem there because that's not a value for them. And what the Bible continually warns us is, is like, you don't, like, I tell this to college students all the time, you're not dating potential. You're dating where they're at. <laughs> and, 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 and so what, what we need to remember is the warning there, as we see all throughout the Old Testament and into the New, is what's going to happen is over time, they are going to pull you in a direction where God is no longer the central focus. So it warns us against that. Notice that Samson found her deep, it says, in Israelite territory in Timnah. He was, he was, he, he was free, walking around, and there's the Philistines and, and all of that. And what we see here, you guys, is the Philistines who had enslaved them, they're living normal lives in Israel, and yet they're the rulers over Israel, and yet there's, there's complete peace here. To the point where Samson thought nothing of marrying one of them. And, and what this should cause us to realize is that something is huge, something huge here is missing that we've seen uh, be a cycle throughout the book. You guys, Israel hasn't cried out to be rescued. You catch that? Throughout the book of Judges, what happens? They're enslaved, uh, they're experiencing intense opposition, and ultimately they cry out to the Lord. They say, rescue us, please. We can't do it. We can't take it anymore. Israel is so ingrained uh, into the culture of the Philistines, they're not even crying out and praying for rescue. There's no resistance to this enslavement. And, and, and later that we're going to see, uh, the men of Judah, they, they take it just as fact that the Philistines are rulers over them. And they're upset at Samson for messing with that peace. See, the people are blind to it. Why? Because idolatry accommodates culture. The Israelites don't resist their captors because they've adopted the values, the morals, the idols of the Philistines. And so Israel's very identity is the set-apart people of God. It's being taken. And so God says, enough is enough. I'm going to intervene in order to prevent my people from becoming spiritually extinct. And so he intervenes. And verse four of chapter 14 is so critical to our understanding. It's a crucial verse to understand. See, his parents, they didn't know. It says that the Lord was at work in this. What in the world was the Lord at work doing? It says that the Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. 
See, God's like, listen, yeah, Samson's flawed. He's got weaknesses, all of these things, but I'm, I'm gonna even use him in spite of that. I'm actually gonna use even his sinful behavior to bring uh, this confrontation between these two nations who need to be enemies, but they're uh, not. And what God is doing is reminding us of his unconditional commitment and covenant to the people of God, that he was gonna bless them, that he was going to um, literally fulfill, uh, you know, all of these incredible promises that he had for them, for their inheritance. And so once again, he is always gonna honor that and he uses even their own sinfulness to bring about a deliverance that only he can bring. And what this reminds me of is Acts 2.23, you guys. Acts 2.23, it talks about how to, to the plan, according to the foreknowledge of God, was what put Jesus on the cross. In other words, the wickedness that the people uh, were engaging in when they put Jesus on the cross, God is like, I took that and used it to ultimately bring about the greatest act of redemption in human history. And so here is an incredible uh, truth, you guys, and a reminder uh, for us. God in his mercy is using people's weaknesses to bring about here a division between right and wrong. And so we, we finish here in verse uh, five and we'll read it all the way through. It says, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that they had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Great strategy. Uh, <laughs> have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, oh, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people. You have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days. But their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And that is why you don't read Judges. 
It's like, I just need to take a shower from what I just read, right? It's just what happened. I mean, it's a mess. It's awful. It's wicked. <laughs> Samson's traveling with his parents. That seems good. Traveling to make these marriage arrangements. Somehow they get separated. A lion attacks him. He rips apart this lion with his bare hands. Doesn't tell his parents. There's a little trend here. Notice, he doesn't tell his parents. Later he returns, he sees the dead lion's carcass there and there's honey that's grown uh, in it, which, which personally I just think is nasty altogether, but apparently it was not. And so he touches this dead animal, which is once again breaking his Nazarite vow, showing us that he is bending and conforming here. And once again, he does that without telling his parents. He even gives them, causing them to be unclean, gives them some of the honey. And then Samson prepares to marry his bride. And as he's preparing to marry his bride, he goes, oh, let's, let's do this little friendly wager, okay? Over uh, 30 garments, right? My wardrobe isn't full enough. I need more. And so these 30 individuals who are his, essentially his groomsmen, he makes this bet with them. And that if they can figure out this riddle, that's the bet. They'll get 30 uh, garments of clothing or he gets 30 garments of clothing. And they don't know it. They, don't, they, they can't figure it out after three days. So they threaten his wife. She ends up um, pleading with him day after day after day after day. He caves in, tells her the riddle. She passes along the riddle. They tell him what it is. And then we are introduced to Samson, who is uncontrollable, who has rage, who has anger. And what does he go and do? Out of his anger and his rage, he goes to a neighboring town and kills, murders three, 30 Philistines, takes their clothes and brings it back. Says, there you go. And then he's so worked up and angry, he goes back home, doesn't even consummate his marriage. And then the woman that's pledged to be his wife is then given to his best man. And we just go, what in the world? I think what makes it even more challenging is it says the spirit of God was at work. We're like, what? How God? The spirit of God is actually using the weaknesses and the sin of, 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 of Samson to bring about a collision between Israel and the Philistines. So God's like, man, this dude's acting wicked. He's acting against me. I'm going to take it. I'm going to use that though in order to deliver my people. And what we see here, you guys, is the spirit of God is actually leading the division. Do you catch that? The spirit of God is initiating division. Now, why is that important for us to understand and to, and to see? You guys, when God sees you and I in a situation that is potentially harmful, that is that when he sees us in a situation that we're starting to conform uh, into something that he's called us away from, he will, because he's God and because he loves you, he will bring about division in that. In other words, if, if, if it is not right for you to get this job, he's like, I'm not going to let you get it. If, if you say, I'm marrying this person, I want this to happen. And, and, and all of a sudden, and God's like, no, I, I see what you're becoming. I see what could happen. He will cut it off. 
Like he will end it, right? Like, uh, and, and, and what we typically do, you guys, when God intervenes like that and, and, and creates division from a desired outcome that we have, what do we typically do? We blame him, don't we? Are you kidding, God? Why did you do that? God, I was praying for that. God, I wanted that. What is wrong with you? And yet, God was intervening because there needed to be division there. God saw something harmful. He saw you becoming something that, just like Samson, was not what you were called to be. So sometimes he has to intervene. He keeps his promises. And guys, he will use flawed people like Samson to get his work done. And that's tough because we, sometimes we go, man, God, shouldn't you only use good people? People that love you. When we say that, you guys, what, what's happening there is we're limiting what he can do. And the reality is this, you guys, even sin itself has to bow down to the will of God. So what God says, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to restore my people to bring them to the place they need to be. And if it is creating conflict here in order to rescue them out of spiritual extinction, I'm gonna do it. And you guys, he loves you enough to do the same thing in your life. He loves you enough to intervene. The nation of Israel wasn't asking for him to do it, but he loved them enough to say, I don't care. I love you so deeply, I'm jumping in. And so what... what what is our takeaway here? One is God can use anyone to bring about his perfect plan. He can use anyone. I think the next question we have to ask is, what am I reflecting? What am I reflecting? Am I, re am I reflecting who God says I am? Am I reflecting uh, the walk that he's called me to walk? Or am I reflecting the very things he's called me out of, away from. And ultimately that brings to the front the question, is there a division in my life that needs to happen? Is there a breaking of something that needs to happen? And then I think lastly, as we look at Samson and the moral decline there of his life, we see small compromises and we see secrets, don't we? says he kept that from his parents. He kept that from his parents. There's secrets that are, are happening in his life and he refuses to respond to people that love him. He refuses to respond. And so I, I think the question that we have to ask is, are there, are there compromises that are happening in my life that are slowly starting to unravel me to where I'm starting to head down a road that ultimately is going to lead to ruin? And guys, the enemy is going to want you to think it's no big deal. It's okay. Everyone else is doing it. So what will we choose? And you guys, I can't plead with you enough to choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. I mean, Jesus loves you so much. He cares about you so much. We read in scripture that, that he knew you. He shaped you and formed you in your mother's womb. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. And your life may be characterized. You're like, well, I wasn't as crazy as that guy, but I was pretty crazy. And, and maybe all those things characterize you. God can still use you. 
Can you respond to Jesus? Yes, you can respond to Jesus. And so I want to invite you to do that. And then lastly, I want to just encourage you once again, you guys, are, are we starting to conform or are we, as scripture calls us, are we being conformed by the renewing of our mind? What is pleasing the Lord?